This episode of Brand Growth Heroes is supported by Strong Roots. Strong Roots believes food can be better for you and for the planet. Their end goal? To fix the freezer aisle for good. I love Strong Roots for so many reasons, but particularly because their exciting product innovation and inspired branding has revolutionised freezer aisles across the globe in only six years. So this season, with Strong Roots support, Brand Growth Heroes will continue to champion the founders of insurgent brands on their own scale-up journey. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Way back in 2014, Scott McCulloch and his wife Karis started a vegan subscription box from their flat. The vegan kind grew and evolved to become the UK's only biggest vegan supermarket. In this episode, our first with the grocery retailer, Scott tells us the story of how they grew the business, the exact steps that you need to take to become the best supplier to a retailer that you can possibly be, what he thinks the vegan food landscape will look like in five years' time, and finally, in an addition to our original podcast recording, why he and Karis have just announced that they have stepped down from managing the business to non-exec roles. Scott McCulloch of The Vegan Kind, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. How are you doing? I am very, very well, Fiona. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. So listen, you were the very first vegan subscription box that launched in the UK. And since launch, you have gone from strength to strength and the business has changed quite dramatically and got bigger and bigger. Tell us the story. How did you end up launching a vegan subscription box? How has the business grown since you launched? Yeah, so back in 2013, when we, when we first ever launched, um, essentially both Karis and I, wife, um, mother of my three children and co-founder of the business. Um, yeah, we were just in, in our flat. We were both employed. I was working at RBS as a business manager. Karis was working in Santander as a, a project manager. Um, and yeah, I think we just maybe had entrepreneurial aspirations. We kind of often thought that we would do something together. And um, yeah, we just had our first child. And I think that that kind of became a bit of a catalyst to think, right, what, what are we going to do together? Because we've, we've just realised how complex it is when you add a child into the mix and you, you lose quite a lot of your time and it's quite hard to go be somewhere at three o'clock when you're meant to be at your work until five. So yeah, we sort of had a bit of a, a real desire to get something off the ground. And then um, Karis had been a lifelong vegetarian. I'd been a lifelong meat eater. And um, but we were harmoniously a couple. There was not no arguments in the house. But uh, I'd found myself more and more uh, gravitating towards uh, vegetarian foods just through uh, being a couple, the vegetarian. And uh, but Karis really was the one who was on that kind of altruistic path to veganism. You know, just a step away from becoming vegan at all times, really. Um, so yeah, so she at that point in time had a um, YouTube channel um, like way back in the day um, uh, where she used to like do sort of product reviews and stuff like that, and she used to. You used to, yeah. So that that channel's gone now, so you can't find it. But yeah, she had she she amassed like twenty five thousand followers uh, way back then. God, that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. So she had she already had a kind of captive audience, and one of the products that she used to receive each month to kind of review was Glossy Box, which is a, a sort of beauty subscription box. And um, yeah, essentially, um, we were. She was very much on that path. I already was. I was, I was sort of seventy five percent vegetarian. The two of us were kind of going vegan. And um, yeah, we just recognized how difficult it was and, you know, a lot of the products weren't labeled properly and it was a bit of a, a sort of mystery as to how people did it. And um, 
yeah, Gareth just one night was like, you know what would be amazing? Like, it's the glossy box I get. You know, imagine there was a vegan subscription box. Would you really help people? And the two of us were just like, immediately, as soon as she said it, I was like, oh my God, that's that, that's it. And from that second fo- forward, um, you know, the company was formed that night, website domain registered. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we, we ended up with uh, the vegan kind, which was uh, the first ever vegan subscription box in the UK. Um, where we would ship products to a person's house. They didn't, didn't know what they were going to receive. It would all work on the element of surprise, um, but people would rely on us to find new to market, hard uh, to find exciting products, get them to their door. And, you know, it was a sort of experiential. It was like having a birthday every month. And that was the problem back then, wasn't it? Because there wasn't the range of vegan products that is available today. And going out and finding them was a bit of a hassle. You wouldn't necessarily come across them. At what point did you know that you were onto something? How was that box received? Very, very well. I think the, the main thing was um, that the, there was already a movement towards veganism. Obviously, people have been going vegan for, for, for decades and decades, but um, there was already a kind of um, big change in society, really, where more and more people were talking about it, dabbling about it. And I think that had really just been through the growth of, of YouTube, really, and social media, where people were explaining about what happens in the egg industry, explaining about what happens in the dairy industry. You know, Karis being one of those people, absolutely having her eyes open one night on YouTube, going, oh, my God, I've been vegetating my whole life. I cannot believe I consume dairy. Cannot believe I consume eggs. And um, yeah, me, 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 the same looking at all this stuff going, oh my God. So like, I think just social media and, and YouTube definitely sort of spawned this new wave, this new generation of people that weren't even necessarily thinking about veganism, uh, vegetarianism anymore. They were like straight away, what is this vegan? I'm, I'm, I need to do it. So we knew we had a kind of captive audience um, and it was just up to us to find the best products and get into people's hands, keep them excited. Did you know the 50 people that you sent the boxes? How did you gather a marketplace for yourselves for that first test box? Yeah, so we did uh, launch like the Facebook page and um, Instagram and such like about maybe four months before um, the box shipped. So we like, it was caught, we just like sharing loads of memes and loads of content. And the Caris obviously had a, a big um, YouTube following at that time. So again, instantly people were uh, willing to sort of support whatever she moved into. Um, and, and, and yeah, it was just, the, the audience was, was, was kind of slow and steady at first, but we just kept everybody excited about, you know, one week to go two you know, six days to go, five days to go. And, uh, yeah, then when we, we, we put the website live, you know, we had 50 people subscribe straight away. So, um, we just kind of sort of knew immediately we're like, right, there's, there's something there to go at. And it just grew exponentially week on week for, you know, several years, really. At the end of the first year, was that when all of a sudden you're like, Jesus, we have a proper business here? What was the next mark in time that you knew that this was going to have to take off at a different level? I think this is the first time was we were packing all the boxes in our flat ourselves and we used to work our, our normal jobs. We'd come home and then pick up the vegan kind, doing customer services, doing digital marketing, doing all that kind of stuff. And then when it came to packing time, I think by the time we got to something like 1,500 boxes, which was only after a few months or maybe six months, um, that in our two-bedroom flat with a baby and a cat and a dog, <clears throat> the thing you make up all the boxes, receive all the goods, um, it was starting to get really, really unmanageable. Um, and I think one one particular day, I was at an appointment in Oban, like three hours away. Kaz was in a meeting at Santander, and I got a phone call. One of the deliveries had came in. It was the first time that the things that we were ordering had started to arrive in sort of pallet quantities. So there was a haulage guy outside my flat, you know, saying, like, where, where's the where's the tail lift? Where did I drop this? And we were like, <laughs> we're in a flat. So he, so he just dropped it out 
on the public street. And um, yeah, we just left it there for a couple of hours because we had nothing else to do and we couldn't have the guy take it back. And we eventually got back from work and, and we're like, right, we've hit a point now whereby we can't do this from our flat anymore. It was already really hard, really difficult. But yeah, that, that sort of was the catalyst for us to say, look, let's take on a warehouse. And we took on our first, uh, I think it was 1,500 square foot uh, unit. And um, at that point in time, we were like, which one of us is going to leave our job? And um, I'd actually coincidentally just been promoted where I was. I was at World Pay at that point in time and I'd just been promoted. Um, so yeah, Caris came out of her job um, and we hired a first time, uh, full, first full-time employee to assist as well. So you took on your own warehouse. Was there such a thing as kind of fulfillment houses back then who would pack and box and send out for you? Or was that even a choice or did you decide to build your own operation on purpose? I think I think in hindsight, because now now we do outsource all the subscription boxes they get packed by a, a fulfillment place. And I think I think in hindsight we should have done that, but we didn't we didn't really know any better. And I think as well, it was growing so rapidly that the personal touch and everything that we did, like we enjoyed packing the boxes ourselves. Like we would sometimes when it was, you know, getting close to the wire, you know, we had to ship all our boxes by the fourth of, of each month or whatever. If, if, um, if we were close to the wire, a couple of times I remember Karis and I driving to the unit, reversing the car into the unit with Casey asleep in the back, shut the boot, turn all the lights off. And we would pack from say midnight until five in the morning just to get it done and then fire back home, grab a quicker sleep and then I'd be away to an appointment somewhere and Karis would get on with their day. So we liked liked that kind of hands-on approach to things and we felt really connected to everything that we were doing and the sort of community that we were growing. So I think we did discuss going outsourced, but we just didn't want to. But I think if I could go back in time, we definitely should have and would have. Okay. But you know what, I suppose, who's to say that had you outsourced it, whether you really would have felt that same connection to the business growing? Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe that was the thing that made you so passionate about it. Because at a certain point, then you decided to leave work, didn't you? Yeah. So yeah, I think it was 2016, really. And, and the, the vegan kind of kind of started the plateau. So we were purely a subscription box service. We'd had our, our, our sort of food and drink box and the beauty box that was in quarterly. And yeah, it was really, we were not seeing the same growth that we became accustomed to. We just had our second child. Um, so Caris was, you know, you know and, and I was actually working away maybe three nights a week. So I was away quite a lot. Caris was single parent and therefore half the week with, with two children. One of them was a baby under one. And um, yeah, the vegan kind was just kind of in the middle of it all, just suffering a wee bit. It wasn't really growing. And uh, we just thought, you know what, has the subscription box operating model kind of had its heyday or have we hit some sort of ceiling? We were like, no, 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 like we've got this amazing audience, you know, like it, it could be more, it should be more. It's up to us whether we commit to this or not. So we were like, what is the problem? And then we realized that really it was the fact that I still have my job because we, we had that income to rely on. Um, and, but it also was problematic because I was staying away. So Karis and I weren't together like we were at the right start of the business. Um, and Karis was, was only had so much time because she had two kids on her own and I only had so much time because I had a full-time job. So we thought, now, the only way that this is going to work if we just look each other in the eye and say, right, we're going to go for it and, and I'm going to hand in my notice, basically. So I did that. And um, yeah, my, my boss was really, really good about it. Everybody knew about the vegan kind anyway. And they basically said, look, we'll give you like a four-month sort of leave period. So I had a, a real smooth transition into uh, full-time set, um, self-employed life. Um, and basically, but we knew that the subscription box wasn't going to be our future. We were like, we're going to have to do something else. So just through doing a whole load of kind of keywords research and uh, sort of traffic analysis, we realized that a lot of the 
products that all people were looking for were things that we just didn't sell because they wouldn't have been in an ambient subscription box. So like plant-based bacon, you know, where do I buy vegan cheese and, you know, can you get vegan camembert, you know, are there such a thing as vegan sausages, whatever, all these, all these search terms, like that was all the volume of traffic. And I was like, right, that's it. We're, gonna, we're just going to have to go for it and set up an online vegan supermarket. So this is really interesting because you said two really interesting things here. The first one was you basically asked yourselves the question, what's the difference that's going to make the difference? Yeah, yeah. And we always talk about that on the Growth Strategy Programme. And I think it's a really important point for businesses out there who are listening. You know, what is the one thing that if you changed it would make the difference? And are you willing to make that change? And is it a risk worth taking? And that's a great example. And the other thing you talk about then is trying to identify or establish the size of the market opportunity. And you used a proxy for that. And the proxy was search, right? And it isn't even a proxy, is it really? It's, you know, search is going to end up converting at some point. But you were able to say, right, which product categories are people most interested in? What are they looking for? Where is their need? Where are the most occasions that people feel a need? And those are the categories that we need to go into. And I think that just highlights the importance of understanding the size of the market opportunity and making a clear choice about where to play. And you guys did that, right? Rather than just ending up in particular niches and then realising too late that they were too small. And I just think that's a brilliant example of where to play decision based on market sizing. Yeah. So you decided, okay, some of these products, we don't have uh, capabilities to have like chilled products. So what did that mean for you guys? Well, it was it was a gamble in, in some respects because back then not many people were, were were sort of sending chilled goods through the post as 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 it were. So um, we knew that we were kind of up against it, maybe operationally or financially in terms of getting the infrastructure set up. But at the same time, it's quite exciting as well, and that's where all the sort of brands were growing into. And it, those were the hard to find products that they just did not get in the supermarket. You know, you didn't. There was like one vegan cheese when I went vegan, and it wasn't very nice. You know, but we now sell over two hundred of them. Oh my God, 200 vegan trees, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like we've been, we've been a sort of like seen that evolve. Um, but we just knew, we, we knew that the market was going that way. You know, when you're, when you were trying it and just seeing what's happening in society, they're like, people are going to fix that. You know, there might not be an amazing bacon now, but it's absolutely definitely going to come. You know, there's, there's one or two steaks or whatever, but it's getting better and better. We just knew that that was happening. So we knew it was worthwhile investing in our own fridge, you know, investing in a bigger warehouse, you know, taking on the additional infrastructure to have this new operating model stack up. And were these products, were you still thinking that these would go into subscription boxes or were you starting to think that this would be more of a wholesale model? No, so this was this was this was a, a specific decision to enter into uh, becoming a grocer, an online grocer, like an online supermarket. So we basically, at that point in time, we had two websites. We had theveganking.com, which was our subscription boxes, and we then we then had theveganking.supermarket.com, which was the sort of I guess one hundred percent vegan version of a cattle, really. Um, and uh, we we sort of marketed to both sets of consumers quite differently, um, and then sort of post checkout would tell them about the other side of the business type of thing. Um, we've evolved through that now. We've gone through a, a, a rebrand and we're, we're just the vegan kind now and it's all on one website and we're then trying to think of other ways to um, sell both parts of the business but on the same website, which is uh, working well for us. What kind of size is the business now? Yeah, so we'll do about, um, well, in fact, last year then. So our financial year end is like um, uh, November. So we uh, closed last year at £7.4 million in revenue. Um, which was uh, there's there's definitely a kind of COVID COVID bounce number in there as well because we have come down a bit from that this year. Like everybody, to to sustain the revenue of a once in a lifetime pandemic and grow from that point, you've done something remarkably well. So absolutely. And how many staff do you employ? 
So at the moment, we're probably around about 40. Um, and during, during COVID, we were up at 70 at one point. Wow. So it's a real proper big business. I mean, that's the big thing to manage. Yeah, for sure. It's, and, and the thing is as well, in a post-COVID world, it's, it's, uh, it's got quite complex as well because, you know, everybody was so dissipated, you know, within the business because of COVID. But then at the same time, during that COVID period, you end up saying, well, you know, we can have people from anywhere in the world. So, you you, you know, being in Glasgow didn't become a, a prerequisite. So you've got people down south and then people abroad. And then you want to bring the team back together, but you, you kind of can't. And then you've got hybrid working and you say, well, come on, everybody, let's, let's be in the office three days a week. But then now in the current world, Every day there'll be somebody say, well, can I just not be there because I've got something arriving from Ikea or I've got a doctor's appointment, so I'm just going to stay at home for the day or I've got this. So you, it's very, very, it's not, and, and then it's, it's too dictatorial to say to everybody, no, you have to be here and you simply cannot have a reason to not be here because that's not life anymore. So it's almost like you're almost like you're then, in order to have absolutely everyone together, you're almost having to create a big event because <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's just a, a new world. Yeah. And so much, I suppose, as a CEO and founder, so much of your time goes towards managing people and operations, right? The operations of people, as well as then the strategy of the business. One of the things you said there that's really quite mind blowing was 200 vegan cheeses. So everybody out there who's starting a food business and they're thinking, okay, I'm starting vegan food business and it's pretty much a white space, a blue ocean. There aren't that many products in my category right now. I'm going to have the best vegan meat replacement or the best vegan cheese. Yet there are 200 vegan cheeses out there. Is that why it's so difficult to compete in categories right now? I don't think I had any idea that the marketplace was so crowded it's definitely like, I mean, there is, it's so hard to find something now that has not been veganized. Um, you know, cause I guess that was, the, that was what everybody was doing for the, the longest time really was trying to get a, a bacon that would work or a burger or a sausage or whatever and getting the textures better and better. And then I guess it moved on to brand specific stuff like, you know, nobody makes like a, a an exact, like a vegan Twix, you know, or why doesn't somebody do a, a vegan Mars bar? There's vegan versions of absolutely everything now. And then you take it into things like cheese. And again, there's so many brands, there's so many big brands that are global, so many smaller artisan ones. And um, it is hard to cut through. But I think from, a, from the perspective of cheese, it's um, something that's quite visually striking, works well. You know, one of the top brands that we stock is um, I Am Not Okay. Um, and they, uh, yeah, all of their the, the sort of like marbled effect through their cheeses are kind of like aged look or whatever, but they all taste absolutely incredible, but they look incredible as well. And they've got really, really quirky branding, quirky packaging. And I think there, there's kind of has to be that to stand out nowadays. Um, so if we get something that might taste amazing, but it's coming through and I kind of like, non-striking packaging maybe or like a kind of um wrapped in paper as a sample it's you know which is quite often the case before people get to the point of it becoming a brand but it's uh with the amount of samples coming to us at all times it's really a visual impact is one of the best ways to get us to go do you know what like that looks amazing i probably want to stop that we can we can market that you know that will look good on the website Actually, this is a really good opportunity because we have never had a major grocer on the show before so that's a large kudos there. I'm not sure a major grocer you have ever hidden. Come on, you are. You're the major vegan grocer, right? And not only are you CEO, but you've been the buyer, the only buyer. And I'm sure you have buyers now working for you, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've, to be honest, being the buyer isn't something I've ever had to do. So Jenna, our first ever member of staff, who's still with us to this day, who's a senior category buyer, um, 
It's pretty much so she was she was sort of doing our Candice was originally doing the buying for the subscription boxes, or we both were back in the early days. But then Jenna, our first member of staff, she's she's um, our senior buyer now. But we've got two other or three other buyers at the moment and a commercial director. So there's like a sort of team of four or five in our sort of buying team. We were having a laugh before we started the show. I was telling you that my whole alumni group of like 60 brands are all clamoring for the opportunity for me to pitch to you today while we're on. I've actually had sales sheets sent to me on WhatsApp. I've got some strategically placed products on the back of the screen here. It's like, you know, please get the opportunity to pitch us to Scott. How can brands today who are scaling startups be the best possible suppliers to you guys from the very beginning as to how do they get noticed by you guys? And when I say you guys, you can give us generic advice for just retail in general, because people are really frustrated at the moment that they can't get through to buyers. They can't get seen. Nobody's answering emails because across the board in all of the major malts and the smaller wholesalers or smaller supermarkets, everyone is so busy with revamping their own ranges due to packaging changes, cost increases, then putting through cost increases on supplier stuff. Staff seem to be down, staff numbers across all the buying teams seem to be down. From the word go, how do we get noticed? And then once we get listed, how do we make sure that it is an absolute pleasure to work with us? Yeah, first and foremost, I would definitely say that like I do feel for brands that are trying to set up a business right now or or, or where even pre-pandemic or whatever, like I, I, I do get how difficult it must be. I don't, I'm not fully involved in our, in our sort of buying process. So like, you know, Ali, our commercial director, who's uh, sort of former commercial at Holland and Barrett, former commercial at Aldi, would maybe have a, a sort of more in-depth response for, from my opinion and my sort of overview of it all. Um, the sheer volume of samples that we get is, is astronomical and we are, a very, very small team. We actually had one extra uh, person in our buying team. Um, and uh, when, when, when they left the business, we didn't replace them. Just again, we're coming out of a sort of post pandemic world. That therefore everybody's watching costs. And I think that's like you say, it's the same for the big guys. So we, we, we already feel like a bit of a depleted team. Everyone's all really, really busy, stretched. You know, we're like trying to get to the point where we can recruit another buyer, but there's that feeling of feeling so, so stretched. Meanwhile, the amount of products coming to us feels like it's doubling at the same time. Can I just ask a quick question? Where do the products go? Do people send them on spec and do they kind of go into a room somewhere or how does it happen? Yeah, so well, basically what happens is, so brands email work with us at thevegankind.com, um, which is a sort of generic inbox and all of the category buyers have access to that inbox and we'll, we'll sort of flag different um, products to each uh, buyer. Um, and then there's a, a review process. I'm not sure if they do it fortnightly or monthly where they'll sit down in a room so they actually do go through them all systematically. Yeah, they'll, they'll test all the products, taste all the products. But at the same time, the sheer volume of them, when you see the amount of people that are there, you're like, you, you can't, you know, so I don't know how many people get, get a response from us. Ideally, we would respond to absolutely everyone, but I can't profess that that does actually happen. Um, but certainly in terms of like how you can, how you can stand out, I mean, I guess... Being 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 organised in terms of the way that the sample comes to us, um, like sometimes I guess maybe a brand will have just not put a thought into it and just thought, I'm so happy that I can send this and I've got an address, so it'll just arrive and it's it's not being carefully packaged. It doesn't have a barcode on it. Like we've got a big warehouse with five and a half thousand SKUs. You know, a lot of people, a lot of things moving about. We don't really sell products that don't have barcodes. You know, and, and, you know, we need a, a full product spec. We need to have all the information to be able to list it on the website. And maybe all that stuff 
to the to the person saying the sample is will come a bit later. But to us, from a first impression point of view, if all of the product information is there, we know it's barcoded. We know that you know they understand the shelf life of the product if it's chilled, um, and it's just presented really professionally. Um, and I guess maybe personalized as well. Like, a, you know, it's, it's, it's a, maybe a bit like doing a CV where, you know, back in the day, you, you're, you're, how the hell can I make the guy look this out? So just maybe having it something quirky about it that will, you know, jog someone's memory. But, but in the most part as well, I think, um, there, there will be certain categories that we're just seeing a hell of a lot more products arriving. Like confectionery is one of them. You know, we've got a lot, a lot of confectionery, um, that it just will be more difficult to stand out. That's amazing. You know, I always thought that if you're just sending samples, it would just be like it didn't really matter that it didn't have a barcode because it was probably still at sample stage. That makes so much sense for your business, understanding how your business works. If you've got no time and 50% of the products are ready to go and you know that the manufacturers or even small scale producers understand the way to do business, you're basically going to have to cut some people out of the mix. And that's one way you can just kind of say, look, we just don't have the resources to be dealing with anything other than stuff that's ready to go right now. Yeah, and that's it. So samples from, you know, if it's a, if a larger brand, for example, or if it comes and you can tell it's been through a, I don't know, a manufacturer who understands that process, like crisps that come in the foil bag with just the white sort of label on it or whatever, you know, with the different flavors, then you sort of know that the, when you get to that point, but if it's, if it's a smaller brand, like we were talking earlier about an event we've got coming up and um, yeah, if it's a smaller brand that hasn't been through a, a sort of considered sample process and they have just done it themselves, then they maybe can stand out and it's like, like you say, with with a sort of limited amount of time and so many brands and products to look at, then it's the case that you maybe wonder, am I going to have to go to this brand and explain that when it arrives here, it's going to come in at the back door and needs barcoded so that we can check what it is so that it matches the PO that we put in so that when we open the box, take the products out, that barcode is so that we can locate it on our shelves with a barcode. That the person, if it's chilled goods that they sent, they know we're going to test the temperature of that at the back door, you know, and if it's not within temperature range, it will get. You know, we can't. We can't take it. So there's a chill chain that people don't seem to understand. Yeah, do you know it's funny? I received samples about just before the pandemic, and it was a brand that is absolutely massive now, and I would adore to have them on the show. But at the time, they were small. They were under a million, and the PR company sent me samples, and the samples arrived, and it was a chilled product, and they were warm, and even though it was a vegan meat. Because I'm used to eating chilled meat or cooking chilled meat, I had no idea whether that was safe or not. Do you, do you know? Do you know that's one of the most tragic things about plant-based? Because the whole chill chain, the whole like industry, is um, based upon meat, really. You know, and, and obviously it's an, an entirely different substance when you're talking about plant-based meat versus a you know an actual animal. So, in the largest sense, we all feel as a team, you know, there should be some separate regulations to do with plant-based food because it isn't the same. It does last so much longer, but we do have to, you know, adhere to the same rules and regulations and, and whatever else. As meat, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just the, ch- the chill chain is the chill chain and, you know. And also from a psychological point of view, you know, when you see something that's slightly clammy, slightly sweaty, even if you were told that it was okay to eat, you probably wouldn't just because your muscle memory from eating 40 years of bacon says to you, oh, I'm just not quite sure. But the point is, is that even brands are not even thinking about sending samples to retailers. I'm thinking about sending samples to any kind of influencers out there. I'm not including myself in that but I know that loads of brands send samples to influencers. You've got to make sure that it's going to be received in a really amazing way and that the temperature's right and it looks safe. There was no note in the box and it was kind of floating around the place and it was sweaty and you think, I can't be dealing with this. Yeah, it might be worthwhile as well investing. So I suppose we get some samples from some people that have came, you know, in a sort of presentation 
format in a way, you know, and, and I know there are companies that help brands do that. So like an experiential kind of sample process, probably really, really costly though. So I get it's not, it's not favorable for every single brand, but it does, it does kind of make it stand out a bit more. To be honest, I think it's kind of the norm nowadays. I mean, most of the brands that we would get sent to the house and we're very lucky, we get a lot sent to the house. They're all in beautiful presentation boxes. And I think it's just part of your marketing budget because if your competitors are doing that, then you're just on the back foot. You're not standing out. You don't have that handwritten note inside and you don't have that beautiful branded the messaging on the outside. If you're the smart founder of a scaling grocery brand and you're inspired by what you learn on Brand Growth Heroes, why not check out our online business accelerator for founders who want to take their growth to the next level? The Growth Strategy Program is a six-week online learning course which offers a suite of bespoke lessons, tools, one-to-one coaching, group workshops, and access to a growing network of support from smart founders of grocery brands just like you. You can find out more by going to fionafitzconsulting.com and then clicking Online Courses. Then just press Register Your Interest Today. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. Okay, so basically we got to the stage, imagine we get through your sampling process and we've done that really well and then we get listed, right? How does it work? Because I remember when we were talking a couple of weeks ago, you were explaining to me how it actually works with your model, the wholesale model, and it was totally different than I imagined. So how does it work in terms of getting a listing and the model? How does it work after that? Yeah, so we we don't, we don't wholesale, um, but we buy from wholesalers. So essentially, yeah, just to sort of understand how we work. And again, this is what we're probably helpful for brands to know. So we do buy direct from brands, a, a, a large number of them. Um, however, that's where it can sort of add in complexities because when we stock five and a half thousand, there's, there's products, there's some of those that we shift at large, large volume. And then there's actually a lot of them, a large percentage of them that we don't. Um, and therefore, we we buy them from from a couple of main wholesalers, and it means that we don't have to take any volume. We can get a pack of six comes in, and then the system knows to basically give us ten days worth of stock. And whenever it thinks we're going to be short, like say we had a pack of six, whenever it gets to two, the system will say order another pack of six. But it means we'll never have more than eight of it in the building, so we're not having volume, and that might be over a month for some certain SKUs. Whereas there's all those fast movers at the other end. Um, but yeah, from when we're, when brands come to us directly, then it's just another direct relationship that we've got to manage for a product that we might only sell smaller volumes of, but then in the future could be huge volumes. So that's where quite often for us, we'll be saying to a lot of smaller brands, like, do you want, can, can you get listed with one of the wholesalers? Because a, a wholesaler, although we would rather have sort of, you know, unique products that you can't get available anywhere else, the brands themselves need to know that they can generate scale in order to get the right sort of economics to make the product in the first place. So getting into wholesalers is just a really viable opportunity or option for them because they can then get their product out to, you know, a lot of the independent health stores across the UK. And it means that we can then stock that brand, but not take the risk of a brand saying, look, we, we need you to take a hundred cases or something like that. And we're saying it's, it's far too much volume for us. We just won't shift it. If you guys say, yes, we really like this product, but we want you to get it listed or we'd recommend that you get it listed through a wholesaler. Will the wholesaler list it because there's already a customer in the pipeline, which is you? Kind of. I mean, generally speaking, um, I guess it, it helps or, it, you know, adds favour. But I mean, I think at the same time, the wholesalers are obviously getting, you know, a lot of contact, a lot of brands that, you know, want stock. So, um, but, but in general, yeah, we've got, We've got, you know, a bit of weight with the wholesalers we deal with. And if we, if we end up coming across a specific product that we think, you know, we, the two of us just cannot make it stack up, 
but it sounds like it would be fine if you guys took it on. Like, for example, if a brand says, look, you know, you'd need to do 100 cases, and we said we just, we just couldn't take it, but we really, really love the product and we think it's amazing. Um, you know, especially with chilled products, it's quite often the case because as soon as we take a chilled product on, if it's got like a 21 day MLOR on it, then, you know, we're under pressure straight away to sell the stuff. Whereas if it goes into a wholesaler, they can take that volume and dissipate it in small quantities far and wide. So it just de-risks it for us, but it means that we can take a product that we desperately want. Do you work hand in hand with those three wholesalers? Are you in like real kind of daily conversation with them annually in a strategic way, or is it just something that happens? Um, at most, I mean, so our, our, our main wholesaler, yeah, I mean, I personally, I mean, I'm sort of on WhatsApp with the, the UK sales director and um, get along really well. Um, but yeah, we don't, we don't sort of like have an annual strategy or anything like that. It's just, we're, we're one of their biggest customers. And I think that's another point as well. It's helpful for brands to, to realize that, you know, the more we buy from wholesalers, the more we have bought over the kind of nine years, the bigger our, our orders get. So therefore the, the sort of bigger discount we can achieve and the scales of economy sort of change whereby quite often we can get products from a wholesaler at such a good price that although we can get it at a, a better price from the brand direct, you know, quite often the gap in the margin, it, it doesn't make it worthwhile dealing with the brand because the extra complexity effort. And if we had those direct relationships with all those brands, it would just be a nightmare. So we can just lean on the wholesaler. It's one PO coming in on mixed pallets and then we can, we can bring in 500 brands in one day, you know, so we, 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 we tend to gravitate towards what the wholesalers can get listed and pick from there. And then only when something makes sense where we can buy at volume, like for example, Biolife cheese from Greece, we buy that direct from them. And um, when it's reached a scale of economy where, where it's worthwhile getting that extra margin, then we can go direct to the brand. But more often than not, that's probably a problem smaller brands have got. And it's why they maybe don't feel that we're maybe taking as much notice. And it's just because we, we can't afford the complexity of dealing with it. And it's simpler if it was coming in from the wholesaler, but I know that it's difficult for them to get in there. That brings us on to uh, our pioneer, the purposeful event. Um, it was originally going to be called Support the Small. We couldn't really decide what to call it. We were going to call it, you know, multitude of other things. We had pioneer the purposeful, and it's essentially an event where we've sort of thought about how we can get back to the kind of grassroots version of TVK, where we were just a small, punchy business trying to make a difference and trying to grow veganism or plant-based living. And um, all the brands that are trying to come at us and get listed that we that we know that we're not able to respond to and that we know that we're you know not um, communicative with. Um, so kind of the purpose was just basically we've gone back, we've gone out to fifteen of those brands and then we're launching them all at the same time and we're creating a landing page for it. And um, we have done an article with the founders of every single one of them as well. So our content writer Aggie has already, I think she's done done most of the writing there. And when's that launching? Uh, the week commencing, um, meant to be week commencing the 6th of, of June, sometime in that week. But essentially what, what we'll do is we'll have a, a customized environment about those brands. Um, and yeah, the, the aim is that, or the, the, the sort of, um, deal was that we'll list, list all these brands. It's for a three month period. Um, uh, you know, help, help give them as much limelight as possible. And then there's, there's sort of like no guarantees at the end of it. Like if we, if we can make it work, then we can keep the listings. And, and if it hasn't, we've, we've hopefully done loads to help grow their brands during that time frame. And then we'll do another 12 to 15 brands. That's lovely. So you're basically making space in your working week and, and three months to give brands that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise have made the time and space because you are so stretched and you want to give back and you want to help showcase them and give them the opportunity to see if they work. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll do it four times a year. That's just brilliant. 
So by the time we launch, that will probably be just launched. So brands can go and find out about that. How can they apply? So that's the next bit. So pro- probably, probably what I'll do after this. So Ali, our commercial director, um, sort of, I guess, hand, hand chose or, or, um, a lot of the brands she just went, she just went through her work with us inbox one day and then um, just went through it, you know, spent a, a full shift and I uh, pulled all the, all the ones out shot, thought were relevant, reached out to a bunch of them. So she's kind of curated that out of the people that were in the work with us inbox. So I would say that that's probably the best place to, to continue, but I will obviously loop you in with, with Ali after this as well. Yeah, because we did a fabulous competition with Strong Roots there for two places on the Growth Strategy Programme and brands love to apply (laughs) to get a shot at something. Maybe in the future we can look at that. So, okay, so then once we're up and running with you guys, how do we be a fabulous supplier? Because you're our customer at the end of the day and it's customer first. So how do we continue to be a fabulous supplier? What do seamless suppliers do for you guys that's different from suppliers that are kind of a little bit more painful to work with? Um, yeah, pr- probably much the same as I was saying earlier in terms of like, you know, the the, the product information being accurate, um, understanding what the, the shelf life is on the product, the minimum life on receipt that, that we'll get, um, understanding, you know, that the products must be received, you know, in the right temperature if, it, if it's chilled, um, having um, all of the, the allergen information ready. You know, like, so that we're not receiving a kind of word doc with some ingredients and saying, we, we think that's an allergen and somebody goes, oh yeah, sorry, I forgot to put that in bold. And it's just having to piece through all these kind of bits and bobs. So just having absolutely everything completely accurate, um, but also making the product exciting as well, which maybe just comes on sort of like the brand and the marketing piece of things. So, um, but yeah, like something eye-catching. What is next for the vegan kind? I mean, you guys have got fabulous plans for growth coming forward. What are the next big things that you're going to be working on over the next few years? Yeah, so um, we are uh, going through a kind of um, bit of a mini pivot into our uh, own label at the moment. So we've um, we've got a, a sub brand called Love Plants, which we brought meals out a couple of years ago, but we never really sort of evolved it to be anything else. Um, but in the middle of June, we're bringing out a kind of range of staples. So there's kind of like, um, sweets and jams and preserves and, and, and whatever else. Um, and the real, the real sort of like, um, uh, sort of thought process behind that was to live in the customer's cupboard longer because, you know, we're, we're a sort of third party reseller, obviously, of, of people's products in the main part. So when, when, when the vegan kind arrives in your home, we're there, our box is there and everything else. And you've had your, your emails and whatever. But then by the time the customer's unpacked all of the goods, then we don't live in the cupboard anymore. We don't live in the home. Um, so we're like, we need, we need to get into our, our own products. So yes, yeah, so we've got the staple range coming. We're looking at plant-based milks, plant-based cheeses. Um, and to be honest, that's again, whereby we might end up in a situation whereby again, that, that these sort of like pioneer the purposeful support the small events might become really useful for us because in order to do our own label, then we are trapped at the moment between the huge volumes that factories want you to commit to who can do on label dead easy, you know, just put it on a factory line, but you've got to commit to like 160,000 sleeves or whatever. Um, and our real need to, to get into own label and therefore a couple of things that we're launching is, is about us finding suppliers who can make products on our behalf with, with small quantities and get into a harmonious working relationship there. And then for us to be able to say, look, as we scale, you'll scale as well. But at the start right now, we just need to be able to build that range out without the complexity of taking on insane volumes that just do not match a business of our size. This probably is one of the world first vegan own label, cross-category own label ranges. 
Maybe I mean you've got you've got w- Wicked Kitchen have done that um, in the UK. Um, so, but yeah, in terms of yeah, in terms of looking independent like us, then maybe yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, are you doing it category by category this launch, or is it going to be a few categories at a time? Um, so, Caroline, our own label manager, um, would go answer this better than me. But yeah, in general, so the, the kind of staples range is what's coming first. Um, and then certainly I know the next one she's looking at is um, uh, definitely plant-based milks. We've got sort of in motion and yeah, our own artisan handmade vegan cheese. So again, we sell so much of it, you know, and it's, and again, for us, you know, it, 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 it's a bit like the supermarkets do really, you know, when they've got a category that's taken off or whatever, then, you know, why not have your product there as the, the pinned product in the cheese collection or whatever. Um, and again, it then means we live in the home longer. I can imagine, though, there'll be some suppliers listening to this who'll be dismayed to think that if they're already supplying you guys, that they'll be up against a private label version that you will be pushing, obviously, because you want it in people's homes. So that makes things a little bit more difficult. I mean, understandably, everyone would understand why you do that. But I can imagine them going, oh, no, we had a white space. Totally. But it's a very, very small brand that we're working with that's doing the cheeses for us um at the same time so i guess they've seen the commercial opportunity of working with us in that respect and maybe maybe that would be maybe there's people right now that 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 are able to come at us from that perspective you know i know you're looking to grow your own label range we do this incredible whatever we know that you know it's it's ultra competitive to try and get our brand in with the five and a half thousand products that are already there but what about if we manufactured for you you know we think our chocolate's the absolute best no one's tasted it you know would you be up for for us branding it as the vegan kind or love plants or whatever. So who should they be getting in touch with you guys specifically on that then? If somebody out there is listening to this and they're thinking, should we be emailing Caroline, the own label manager, with some kind of introduction or proposal? Yeah, I would say so. So, so the work with us inbox is the is the, still the main one. But maybe put that in the subject title. Yeah, yeah. Like if anybody, if anybody thinks that they've got an incredible product that because it, it, is, it is that, you know, like if it is our brand and our sub-brand and as a strategy for us, you know, because we are still a small business in, in the main part, as I say, sort of coming out the back end of a, of a COVID bounce. So like things things are tough and obviously everybody's worried about the economic sort of circumstances. So, you know, we, we, we sort of will naturally try and go with that um, uh, sort of um, tact really of trying to keep our brand in the homes for longer so if somebody feels that they've got an incredible product and feels that they can offer some assistance in that respect then then again that could be a great way to work with us yeah and also a great way to provide some cash flow for businesses who want to push their own brands into different channels what is your vision for the vegan kind for the next five years yeah so i mean essentially our mission is to make a a plant-based plant-based living effortless um, or plant-based lifestyle easily accessible to all one of those two monikers but over the next five years, I really, really, truly, truly believe that the amount of people that are going to go vegan are going to go plant-based is going to go tenfold. Um, I think obviously plant-based market has grown exponentially over the last sort of 10 years, which is great. But at the same time, you know, everybody's seen, you know, the IPCC report and the fact that the world is changing a lot. Climate change is a big, big worry for everyone. And, you know, I firmly believe that for all the people that are sitting worried about what they can do and, you know, concerned about the future for their children or grandchildren or whatever, the easiest thing for us all to do is to just remove animals from our diet. The the products that are available now, a lot of your clients are, you know, part of your tribe are are, are part of that mission really. And um, I think that eventually over the next maybe one or two years, um, governments are going to have to stop kind of skirting around about the issue. And I can sort of see the headlines now whereby whether it's schools, councils, 
um, sort of health sector actually coming out and openly saying, you know, you, you should follow a plant-based diet or in order to, in order to combat the effects of climate change, we recommend you switch to a vegan diet. And that, that sort of recommendation language coming, um, is going to send a whole drove of people that have previously maybe been negative about the connotations around it being vegan or like, you know, I just want to eat animals or whatever. You know, I think there's going to be a wave of people that are going to, I think I better pay attention to this now. And when they arrive on the website or when they arrive on the internet and start looking into it, then we're there as this 10 year deep resource that's been there from right back at the start. That's not, that's not sort of operating as a, a kind of small website. We're, we're there, as I said earlier, like a kind of, um, you know, a vegan Acado or a vegan Tesco, you know, where they, they know they can rely on the, the, the team behind it. But not only that, it's got the, the widest range of products that really do just show how simple it is to live life in a plant-based way. And the ethos, I think that's really important as well. You know, you're not just jumping on the bandwagon. You guys have been here from the very beginning. And I think that's really important because it's very easy for all of the other major grocers to add on or veganize their categories. That was your very purpose from day one. So it just adds this incredible reason to believe and reason to emotionally engage with the vegan kind versus with any other grocer for that particular commercial opportunity. Scott McCulloch, welcome back. I've got to be honest with you. When I saw your LinkedIn post, I think it was two days ago, saying that you and your wife, Karis, were stepping back to become NEDs of the vegan kind, I was saying, what are we going to do? We've just recorded a great episode of Brand Growth Heroes. And then you very kindly said you'd come back on the show to explain to us the background to this decision and what it means for you guys and what it means for the vegan kind going forward. Yeah. So essentially, you know, obviously as we were recording that podcast, a lot of this stuff was already in motion. Um, but you know, like, like all businesses, you know, they go through ebbs and cycles and flows and changes and, and ultimately the vegan kind, you know, has been our entire life for nine solid years. And we're so immensely proud of how far that we've brought the company and how much we've helped grow an entire movement. Um, but when all is said and done, you know, what was right for the business to get it to where it is today isn't necessarily what's right to get it to where it needs to be tomorrow. And and um, we want the business more than anything to be a huge success for a further nine years. And, you know, ultimately we just felt, and this was a, a sort of, you know, roundtable discussion involving our chairman, investors, Karis and I, the lot, you know, um, we, we sort of just agreed that um, it would be amazing if we could find someone who'd, already been through that journey, you know, taking a business from the sort of revenue we're doing now to where it needs to get to in the, over the next five years. And um, we were we were sort of comfortable that if we could find that person that had already kind of walked that path, then it was probably what was right for the vegan kind. And um, yeah, ultimately that was that was um, what we decided to do. And Karis and I both stepped back from our positions. I stepped down as CEO, Karis stepped back as MD, um, but I will still remain um, sort of working with the vegan kind for a minimum of, of 12 months. So I'm basically in a non-exec director position just to support Sarah into her role and ensure that our kind of like uh, roadmap continues as is, you know, with uh, any improvements that she'll bring. Um, and ultimately, um, so that I guess I and Karis um, still I have a voice, you know, at the monthly board meetings and can continue the essence of, of, of what we've done thus far into the next nine years of growth for TVK. What a huge decision. I mean, how do you guys, how does anyone or particularly a couple and a family make that kind of decision? Because you said to me just before we started this second call that although it was all emotion, nothing had been signed and you still weren't necessarily all quite sure. How do you get to the point where you make a decision like that? 
I mean, I guess it's 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 quite tough, and as such as you know, there's a lot of emotion in in, in growing a business to this point. But I think we really are able to view the vegan kind externally to us now you know at one point where we were the business you know everything centered around us and um and that was great but at the end of the day there's a lot of people you know that work here as well and that have helped get tvk to where it is today so we're we're sort of like you know humble enough to realize that um we you know have done a, a good job thus far but that you know perhaps it's um, someone else in the hot seat, I guess, to go through the next nine years of growth for TVK. So it was a difficult decision, but um, at the same time, felt completely right. You know, um, when you're when you're employed, you've always got a kind of like you know chance to move on to a, a new role or a new department or whatever. But when you're a founder of a business, you know you are living it and breathing it. You don't get days off or weekends off. You know, you're you're immersed in it fully, twenty four seven, three six five. You know, and and that 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 that's that kind of growth trajectory that's allowed us to kind of ascend above it and look back on it, and we can see TVK, you know, separate to us now, and and ultimately we just want it to be the best it can be, and you know, if somebody's got the right skill set for that, then we want them here, you know, and and we've just evolved to the point where it's it's all fallen into place that it was a perfect time for us to kind of pass the baton to someone else. Oh, that's brilliant. So you've said that the next year then your non-exec role and you're helping Sarah settle into her role. What happens after that? If you guys have got any dreams, you're going to travel the world? Um, I don't really know. I mean, we're, we're you know, I'm, I'm fully committed to TVK up until probably September or, or October. Um, and then, as I say, I'll drop to a, a sort of monthly board meeting position. Um, but beyond that, we don't, you know, really know. Um, we've we've honestly not got any any plans, you know. Um, uh, I, the world's, you know, a oyster in many respects. There's, there's a few people have came with suggestions or ideas for us. And, you know, I guess I've had a, a sort of few people contact me from uh, sort of old payments space that I used to work in. And I don't know, there's a lot of, a lot of emails flying about and um, we're, we're just, going to see what the universe does for us, I suppose. Well, look, wishing you all the very best with your new adventures and congratulations on building such a successful business for nine full years and for making a decision that feels right for you and your family. And thank you so much for coming back on the show to tell us about it. Perfect. No worries. Thanks, Fiona. Thank you. Thanks again to Strong Roots. Simple, real food. Simple, real food.